you know, we spent a lot of time putting these services together and trying to coordinate all the different elements. Um, but it's always really cool when, when you see it come together in a way that is far greater than you had the ability to plan. And uh, as I sang those songs with you guys this morning, and as I just kind of quieted myself and listened to you sing, which was awesome, by the way, really, really encouraging, and knowing when I was going to get up to s- and say in far greater detail than Ryan had any idea when he put this together, uh, it's evident that the Spirit of the Lord is with us this morning, and so it's really, it's really cool. You know, way back in November, all the way back at the beginning of Advent, we started a study that we're calling Living in the Rhythm of Grace. And uh, for the last couple of months, you know, it occurred to me that we've kind of not talked a lot about that and about what that is. And it also occurred to me that we've had quite a few new people show up in the last couple of months. And so maybe if that's you, you've kind of been thinking, hey man, you know, I come in and I get this worship journal and it says Living in the Rhythm of Grace on it. I come up and I see it on the screens and so forth. And nobody has explained this thing to me. So A, what is the rhythm of grace? B, what does it mean to live in it? And it occurred to me also that it'd be a good reminder for the rest of us. So let me do that. The rhythm of grace, simply put, is the pattern of the gospel. What we have done at Rio is we have taken the pattern of the gospel and we've attached our own unique language to it, but it's just the pattern of the gospel. And so what we do here at Rio in our personal worship, Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, Saturday, as we move toward our corporate worship on Sunday, as we're doing right now, is we work through the pattern of the gospel, personally and individually throughout the week, and then together, like now. So we start by remembering God. And here's what that means. It means far more than just remembering that God exists, though that's not a bad starting place at six o'clock on Monday morning, is it? Helpful, but it's way bigger than that. It's who God is and who God isn't. It's what God's like and what he isn't like. It is be thou my vision every single day. It is training the spiritual eyes of our hearts to gaze upon the true and the living God. And then having done that, what's gesture number two? Immediately, we're honest with him about ourselves. Why? Because we can't help but to be honest with him about ourselves. We have to. That's what happens when you see yourself in light, and I like that word, in the light of the true and the living God. That is not the way we typically see ourselves. We typically look at ourselves in light of one another, and it's a very different kind of light. And so we look at ourselves and measure ourselves off against one another, and by that we give ourselves at least a C plus, right? I mean, out here we say C plus, and here we're thinking A minus, just be honest. But but really, I mean, that's the light by which we look at our lives and we think, hey, I'm pretty good. God must think so too. Okay, be thou my vision. Yeah, a little bit different light. When our eyes are open to see the true and the living God for who he really is, then by that light, we see ourselves for who we really are, and we see a lot of stuff that we don't see by the light of comparison with one another. Isn't that true? Things that we've done, things that we've said, things that we haven't done, things that we haven't said, all of this stuff comes to light, and we recognize that there is a mountain of stuff that we've done that we've placed between ourselves and this perfectly holy, perfectly righteous amazing God, and we recognize as well that there is nothing we can do about it. We can't go back in time. We can't, as I've said in the past, flip through the pages of our books and get the magical whiteout out, you know, and white out all the stuff that we really don't want God to see. It's not some kind of a movie that we can edit and just take chunks out of it. It doesn't work, and we can't cover over our other stuff by now doing really, really good stuff. And maybe there's some kind of a balance. Hey, no, wait a minute. What's the standard? It's perfection. It's God himself. When we see him, we're undone. And we realize that the only option that we have is to come to the God whom we have offended and to ask him to cover over our offenses against him. 
And that is exactly what Christ has done. God in the person of Jesus Christ, God came, guys, came into this world to live the perfect life we have not and to offer His perfectly righteous, infinitely valuable life in our place as a sacrifice that by His blood all of our sin might be covered and washed away and we might be brought into the family of God as sons and daughters of the King. That too is the gospel. So we remember God, we see Him for who He is. We freak out, honestly, because we then see ourselves for who we are. We rush to the grace that is provided to us in Christ, and we rest in His grace and in who we are, and we pour out our praise because that fills your heart with joy. It's relief. It's amazing. And then what do we do? Because we're not done. The same Spirit that comes and draws us to the Lord creates in us a desire to now live for Him. I mean, my goodness, this God in Christ has done this for us and for all of eternity. How can I not now love Him? And what do I do if I love him? Like, what do I want to do? If you love me, you will keep my commandments. Lord, you know what? Now I'm going to receive your wisdom. That's the next gesture. Why? Because I have recognized that I need to be saved not just from my sin, but from myself, from my foolishness, from my selfishness, from all of my limitations, my limited perspective on everything. And I recognize as well that not just by virtue of creation, but by virtue of redemption, I belong to him now and that that's a good thing. So speak, Lord, for your servant listens. And I listen with what kind of a heart? A heart that desires to go out and by the power of God's Spirit and community with you guys in obedience with God's Word to do what he says. That's the rhythm of grace. We remember God. We're honest with him about ourselves. We rest in his grace and the cross. We receive his wisdom. We do what he says, and we work that through daily in our personal worship and corporately as we gather together on Sunday mornings. So the rhythm of grace is the gospel, but living in the rhythm of grace means engaging in all of that. It means interacting with this gospel pattern so regularly in our personal worship and so regularly weekly in our corporate worship that it becomes eventually the pattern by which we do everything else. And we recognize that worship isn't just something we do at 6.30 in the morning or at 9 or 11 on Sunday, but it's also something we do all of the time. Life is worship. And the idea is that this rhythm takes over the whole of our lives and we find ourselves living gospel-shaped, gospel-molded, gospel-formed, transformed kinds of lives that are all the time worship unto the living God. It becomes our operating system for life, our filter through which we run everything. And so when we have a career decision to make, how do we make it? We don't say, well, you know, God is for Sunday morning and he's for 6 a.m. No, he's, he's all the time and I'm his. And it's not even my decision, it's his. So I need to stop and I need to work this through. I need to remember who the Lord is and isn't, what he's like and isn't like. I need to be honest with him about myself and all the ego that I've got attached to this or whatever it is that I've got attached to this that's unholy. That You know, I mean, it's in me. It's who I am. It's who we are. We'll talk about that in a second. I need to rest in who I am in him. Son or daughter of the king. Significance from that. Security from that. Okay, Lord, you know what? What would I do? Speak for your servant listen so that I can go out and do what you say, it's how we face success, it's how we face failure, it's how we process suffering, it's how we address temptation. It overtakes us, and then the gospel shapes us, and it molds us 
and it forms us into the image of Jesus. And so if you're new to us, that's the spiritual journey that we're on that we would invite you to join. When you come in on Sunday mornings, grab one of these guys. Get here a little bit early. I know that's a challenge for some of you, but it's not quite as challenging as it seems to be, okay? It's not. Show up early. Get the kids where they need to go. Settle your heart. Pray to the Lord. Look at how we've constructed the service according to the rhythm of grace. Page five, take notes. And then take this thing home with you. And tomorrow morning, whenever it is that you can do it, get up. Turn to page seven. Recognize that this is the passage of Scripture we'll be looking at next week, which is Easter. There are worship insights, questions. You can go to our website and ask questions on a question and answer forum that we have. But then Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, work through that same passage of Scripture that we'll look at next Sunday on Easter and do it in accordance with this rhythm of grace that it might become ingrained in your heart and in your mind, the operating system ultimately by which you live, and do it according to the different sort of perspective that each day calls you to do as you work your way through the week, okay? So the rhythm of grace is the pattern of the gospel. Living in it, well, it means letting it take you over by engaging in it that regularly. That's what we're hoping you'll join us in doing. And as we continue that effort this morning, we come today to the beginning of a study in the books of First and Second Corinthians, which the first thing I want to say about that is that they're not actually books. These are letters, and they are letters written by the Apostle Paul to a Christian community that he spent a year and a half forming, to a church that he planted in the city of Corinth with much blood, sweat, and tears. And after he got the church up and running, and after he trained the elders and the deacons, he got all the leaders, and he gave them a Sunday, and they kind of did okay with it, and he kind of critiqued them, and then he gave them a few Sundays, and they did really well with it. And finally, he felt like, okay, I can hand this dude off to them. He handed it off to them. He went to another city and he began to plant another church. That's what he did, planting churches, raising up elders and so forth. But after he left, he heard that that church that he had poured his life into in Corinth was struggling. And it's the first century, guys. He can't jump in his car and drive over, you know, he can't get on a train, he can't jump on a jet and just kind of shoot over, hey guys, you know what, I'll be back in about five days, i got to go fix some things in Corinth, and then when I'm done, I'll come back, it doesn't work that way. Thankfully, here's the way that it worked, the thing that he could do was write letters, I say thankfully, because they've become a part of the New Testament, and they speak not just to those folks. They speak to us big time, and here's why. What makes these letters so incredibly fascinating to me is that they are written to a group of people who lived then there in a city that is exactly or was exactly like ours. It's astounding when you study the city of Corinth. So the city of Corinth, I'll just give you some examples, was a very wealthy city. Look, if you are not believing that we live in a wealthy city, then after you go have lunch today, go down, take a water taxi, and just head up the intercoastal, okay? Because that's going to settle it for you. It's beautiful. It's amazing. It's incredible. The resources of this community are astounding. Guys, we are the Venice of the Americas. We are the yachting capital of the world. Is there a greater emblem of great wealth than that? And this place is littered with mega yachts. It's kind of fun. But you see the similarity? Okay, they were a wealthy city for the same reason that we are, location. I'm going to show you where they were located on a map. You can see them right there. So the city of Corinth controlled this little isthmus. It's four and a half miles long. And so what that means, practically speaking, is that they controlled all the trade between these two land masses 
and between these two bodies of water because it was a lot easier and cheaper to sail to the isthmus, to cross over it, it's very small, and then to put your goods on another ship and ship them on out. And that made them an incredibly wealthy city. It was a beautiful city. It was a very liberal city. And the reason that it was a very broad-minded sort of liberal city is because just like our city, it was a port city, and every port city in the world is a liberal city, and if you just think about it, you can understand why. Because port cities are not just places where, where goods and services are trafficked. They're places where religions, philosophies, ideas, worldviews, morals, ethics, all of these other things converge as well. Why? Because they're places that bring together people from all over the world with all of their different religions and philosophies and worldviews and ideas and morals and ethics and so forth. And, you know, I mean, some of them buy a house on the intercoastal. But really, like our city, ancient Corinth was a city that celebrated the arts, sports, entertainment, Those kinds of things presuppose great wealth to support them. They presuppose a broad-mindedness, a liberality of mind, a willingness to consider many things, diversity in that sense. They hosted the Isthmian Games every other year. So the Isthmian Games were like the Super Bowl, basically. They were the second most amazing sporting event in the world in their day, second only to the Olympics. Pretty incredible. And then lastly, like our city, Corinth was a place of rampant and unrestrained sexuality. If somebody called you a Corinthian in the ancient world, you know, you were not probably at least excited about that. Okay? So what makes these letters so fascinating is that they're written to a group of Christians who lived in a city that's just like our city is today. And as a result, they struggled with the same kind of issues that we do. And here's why I can say that with great confidence. Because here's what never changes about humanity. Technology changes, education changes, science, medicine, I get all that. Lots of other changes. Here's what never changes. Human nature. We are all of us, all of us, and always have been and always will be made of the same clay. So then, when we today in our city are subjected to the same kinds of shaping, molding, forming influences that those people back then who were made of the same clay were subjected to because we all live in the same city, guess what happens? We develop the same pathologies that they do and therefore then find ourselves in need of exactly the same instruction, which is what Paul is going to bring us in these two letters. And as we begin to look at that instruction today, what I want you to walk away with is the understanding that Paul takes the whole of what he's going to say in these letters and he grounds it entirely right here at the beginning in the sovereign, merciful, gracious work of the living God. God is the worker. And here's the practical effect of that, and hopefully you'll see it as we work it out. That should make us really, really, really humble. (laughs) That should make us holy because, you know, we got a whole new want to. I mean, all of a sudden now we love this Jesus for all that he's done for us. And by God's grace, as we'll talk about alone, we recognize it. And we want to pursue a life of obedience to Him. It should make us hopeful both for ourselves, for each other, and for everyone else. Because God can change anything and anyone. It should make us thankful, even for people who are difficult and who have hurt us. And it should make us feel secure in our relationship with the Lord. So 
So let's dive in. Paul says this, 1 Corinthians 1, beginning in verse 1. He says, Paul, so now he's going to identify himself, but he's also now going to distinguish himself from every other Paul that ever lived. Here we go. He says, Paul, here's the distinguishing feature, called, watch for that word. It's a key word today, called by the will of God to be an apostle of Christ Jesus. Here's why this designation matters, because it qualifies him to do something that I can't do and that you can't do. Look, I can read the Bible. I can interpret the Bible. I can teach the Bible. I can preach the Bible. I can do all of these other things with the Bible. Here's what I can't do. I can't write the Bible. Can't write it, and neither can you. This is a man who meets the unique qualifications of an apostle, which were two. Number one, I actually, in my flesh, saw the physically risen Jesus. Now, that narrows it down to a pretty small group. And secondly, by that Jesus, I've been specially commissioned as a sent one. That's what apostle means. That I might go forth miraculously proclaiming the Word of God in what I say and in what I write. Paul makes that claim, and it's true of him. So he says, Paul, called by the will of God to be an apostle of Christ Jesus, then he identifies somebody who's with him. He says, and our brother Sosthenes, and the best I can do in terms of identifying this guy is it is most likely at least the guy who was the ruler of the synagogue that we read about in Acts chapter 18 in the city of Corinth when Paul planted that church who was beaten and whatnot, and who may have either gone with Paul to go plant other churches or more likely been sent by that church to Paul to bring to him all of the information that he's now going to address in these letters. So it's like he's saying, hey, Sosthenes has arrived, and yeah, he's filled me in on the details, okay? But now notice what he does. He now talks about this church. And in talking of them, he's talking to us too. He he describes who they and we are. He says to the church of God, not of Paul, not of Tom, not of you, We're the purchase of God. We're His possession. To the church of God that is in Corinth, to those sanctified, that is to say, to those who are set apart for the holy purposes of God. You can think back to the Old Testament, to the temple, to the tabernacle, to all the implements of worship that were sanctified, set apart for the very purposes of the worship of the Lord God. It's that same kind of idea in regard to you. Set apart for the holy purposes of God in Christ Jesus. And what? Because it's the same word that Paul applied to himself, called to be a what? An apostle? No, that's his designation. We are called to be saints, but that word should almost certainly be translated instead, holy ones or holy people together with all those who in every place do what? Call upon the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, both their Lord and ours. And then here comes his greeting, grace to you and not wrath, not anger, not displeasure, but because of the suffering, death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus on your behalf, here's God's disposition toward you. Peace. Peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. All right, time out. Let's review. Who is Paul? He's an apostle. Got it. Designated spokesman for God. One who writes and speaks God's word. Who is Sosthenes? Eh, we're not really sure. Let's move on. Who are the people at Corinth, and for that matter... Who are the rest of us? Who is anybody who is called in the name of the Lord? Who is or who are all of us who are believers in Christ? Because he's described us too. And here's what he said. We are those who would never have come to faith in Jesus, much less experienced any of his transformational uh, benefits thereafter, but for his calling. 
Paul is going to ground all of his teaching by which he's trying to take a people like them and like us, and by which he's going to say, guys, you need to stop being shaped and molded and formed by your city, and you need to start being shaped and molded and formed by the gospel so that you can go out into your city to shape and mold and form it. He's going to ground all of this instruction in God's calling, in His prior work in my life and in yours. And that's pretty humbling. But let me show you how humbling it is. In Romans chapter 3, and one of the advantages that we have over the Corinthian Christians is we have Romans, for example, and so many of the other letters that he wrote. He clarifies a lot of this stuff. He explains it far more clearly. And what he gives to us in this little passage that I'm going to give to you is a description of who we all are by nature and of who we all once were before God came and made it otherwise, sovereignly, graciously, mercifully, and on his own. Speaking as a Jew to Jews, Paul said, what then? Are we Jews any better? Meaning, are we Jews any better than, and let's just be honest, he's saying to his fellow Jews, than these Gentile people that we kind of tend to disdain, that we kind of tend to look critically at, that we kind of tend to, in fact, not kind of, not tend to, that we call unclean and stuff like that. He's saying, are we really any different? Which I think is a good question, because here's the deal. Even if it doesn't come out of here, sometimes it generates and bounces around in here as we look out. And we tend to be critical too. He's saying, are you any different? Humanity is one lump of clay, guys. The answer is no, and it's so emphatic that it's good that you're seated. He says, no, not all, for we have already charged that both Jews and Greeks, like everybody he gathers up in that statement, are all what? Under sin. So by nature, by birth, we're all the same. And now he describes us. He says, as it is written, you ready? None is righteous. Now, we look righteous when we look at each other in light of each other, but that's not the right light. No one is righteous, in case we missed it. No, not one. He goes on. He says, no one understands. No one seeks for God. Not authentically. Now, we might show interest. We might come for other reasons. I think it's good for the kids if we come. You know, it makes my husband or wife happy if I'm here and But in terms of seeking, authentically, on our own, in our own nature, before the Lord comes and changes our nature, doesn't happen. All have turned aside, he says. Together they have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. And I know you want to argue with that because we all feel like we've done some good things and, you know, measured off against each other. We certainly have, and we know these amazing, heroic stories of people who do incredibly selfless and incredible things. And we look at it and go, wow, that's awesome. And it is awesome not to depreciate that in any way, shape, or form. It's the word good that changes the whole dynamic because good means good is God. And the reality is none of us do anything from a perfectly pure place, which means that no one does good. Not even one. And then it really gets crazy. He says their throat is an open grave. They use their tongues to deceive. The venom of asp, that's a poisonous snake, is under their lips. Their mouth is full of curses and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood and their paths are ruin and misery. And the way of peace, they have not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes. And then he ups the ante even further in Ephesians chapter 2 where he says this, beginning in verse 1. He says, and you were 
what before God sovereignly changed this? It's an interesting word. He says, and you were dead. Now, let me ask you something. What can a dead person do? Like if you invite a dead person to lunch today, are they going to show up? Are they going to come over? Are they going to call you? Hey, man, sorry, I can't make it. No. Utterly powerless. Consider that. He says, and you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked. So your body was alive, as was mine, but spiritually, there's no fear of God before my eyes, you know? Not thinking about Him. You were dead in your trespasses and sins and whence you once walked, and here we go, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience who either in ignorance or in arrogance, we at least at times disdain and criticize and label, forgetting that by nature we're no different. And among whom, he now says, we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and of the mind. Okay. Now, even if you couldn't relate to the whole poison of asps in your mouth thing, you know, earlier, I mean, you've got to remember that person, don't you? I mean, just think back to your college years. It's all right. We can go there for a second. Do you not remember that? Like, I mean, I read that description and think, I know that guy. And occasionally he still shows up. Think about that. Living in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind. Okay, we're not exempt from that. And we were in that time, and that state what? By nature, children of wrath, that is to say, people who deserve the infinite wrath of our infinitely holy God, just like, just like everyone else, that we didn't realize it and honestly didn't care. But who changed all of this? But God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which He loved us, even when we were dead, so there it is again in our trespasses, did what? Made us alive together with Christ. He raised us from the dead spiritually. By grace you have been saved. He has to stop and interject that. And raised us up then with Him and seated us with Him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus so that in the coming ages to come, forever and ever and ever and ever and ever, He might show forth the immeasurable riches of His grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. We are the trophies, the emblems of His great grace. Forever we and everyone else will praise Him for what He, not we, have done. And he says it again, for by grace you have been saved through faith, and this, meaning this grace and this faith, is not your own doing. It is the gift of God. It is not a result of works on your behalf. That's the idea. So that no one may boast, at least not in anyone or in anything except for Jesus. And speaking of Jesus, what did he say about this? Well, among other things, John 6, verse 65, he says, and just follow this, no one can come to me unless... It is, first is the point, granted to him by the Father. So what is all this saying? It's saying that nobody can come to faith in Jesus, much less then be transformed by Christ until God first comes to us in our state of spiritual deadness and awakens us by his Holy Spirit from the dead, gives us a new nature, and calls us into a relationship with him. Not one person. And you say, well, you know, and I know you say this because I've had this conversation a hundred times, but 
You say, you know, hey, I'm a Christian though, and I mean, I've given my life to Jesus, and I remember the moment that I made that decision, and I, I made that decision. I mean, like I willfully came forward and said, Lord, here's my life, here's my sin, here's myself, I'm a big mess, please forgive me, I have no other shot, I've seen you, I've seen me, it's not pretty, I cling to the cross. I remember that day, and that was a decision that I made. Are you saying that I didn't do that? I mean, like, am I a, I'm a puppet, and God's just pulling my strings? Am I like a robot, and He's just moving me around, and I'm not consciously aware of this? No. What about my free will? You used it, just like you use it to do everything else. Think about this with me for a second. It is necessarily the case that every decision that you and I have ever made or that you and I ever will make, we've made or will make in accordance with our strongest desire in that particular moment. So one of the things that I've discovered over the course of the past 15 years being up here is that many of you strongly desire to sit in exactly the same place every Sunday, (laughs) which is awesome. And there were a few people in the first service who sat in the wrong place, and it threw me and Ryan, he commented on it afterwards, off completely. We're like, no, 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 you're there, but you're supposed to be, you don't even think about it, but you do, don't you? That's why you're so irritated when you show up and somebody else is in your seat. It's like, apparently they didn't know. Come on. Even when you have to choose between options, you despise You choose in accordance with your strongest desire. I've got option A, B, and C. They're all on the table. I have to make a choice. I don't like any of them, but, you know, A is the preferable one. So I'm going A. That's my desire. Not happy about it. But I more strongly desire A than the others. It is necessarily the case that you you, you do this. I do this. We must. Well, it's true with God, too. So here's the deal. When you and I were in a state of spiritual deadness, when the poison of asps, I know you're not buying that yet, but it's true, we're we're under our tongues, if you will. When we had the old nature as opposed to the new, and we were off living in the passions of our flesh and mind and heart and doing whatever the heck it was that we wanted to do, not even thinking about God, not even caring about God, and secretly hoping maybe that there wasn't a God, because if there is, then we owe Him something, right? Because He created us and No accountability land. That's where we want to live. We freely chose not to authentically give our lives to God because we didn't want to. And we must choose in accordance with our strongest desire. Therefore, we did not. But then the day came that God made you alive. And the light of the gospel shone. The light of God on you, which revealed your need for Christ and drove you happily to Him at that point, at which point you freely chose to give your life to Him, did you not? Why? Because you had a new want to. And your strongest desire was now for as opposed to against Him. And practically speaking, here's what that ought to do. First of all, it should make us humble. Of all the peoples of the world, we should be the most humble. And here's why, because we are the most self-aware. And here's why, because God himself, through people like this man, has come to us and said, hey, do you want to know who you are by nature? Okay, we're going to go into poison of asps land. Let me show you. Here's the mirror. Here's the picture. It should humble us before God. It should humble us before each other. This should be a community full of people who feel free to talk about and share their brokenness and their mistakes and their stupidity and their foolishness because we're all riddled with that stuff. And not to have to worry that somebody's going to judge them or hold it against them or look differently at them or think, well, they're, you know, 
or talk about them or gossip about them. Why? Because these people they're talking to understand, hey, you know what? By nature, same clay. I have my own stuff. But it should humble us before the people of our city. And it should make us a whole heck of a lot more sympathetic, compassionate, and understanding of people that in truth at times at least we tend to disdain or to be critical of. We tend to think that we are somehow superior to. Look, if there is a difference between any of us as believers in Christ and anyone else, it is entirely and wholly to the credit of God. We will never get to heaven, not a one of us, and praise ourselves and pat ourselves on the back for anything that we have done that has in any sense been useful. It is wholly the work of the Lord. So it should make us humble. But secondly, it should make us holy. It should actually cause us, practically speaking, to live different lives, to live lives in the course of this rhythm of grace that become transformed lives and are ever more becoming transformed. We're called to die more and more unto sin and to live more and more unto righteousness as we progress through this life toward the day that we meet our Savior. That's the way it's supposed to work. We're not supposed to die more and more unto righteousness and live more and more unto sin. Holiness matters. It's not the basis by which we enter into a relationship with God. Certainly, no, we've, we've concluded that. But if the Spirit of God has transformed your heart, if He resides within you, He's given you a new want to. And it's not just a, I want to give my sin to Christ. It's I want to give my life to Christ. I grow in love for this one And my love expresses itself organically like fruit coming off of an orange tree. I don't have to work to make it happen. It just, it happens. It it expresses who I am. I express my love for him in obedience. And that's why Paul, again, I think, describes us and them this way. He says the church of God, that's whose we are, that is in Corinth, or to put it differently, as those who are what? Sanctified. In Christ, which is to say, as those who are set apart for the holy purposes of God in Christ Jesus and who are therefore called to be saints, no, yes, holy ones, holy ones, together with all those who in every place call upon the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, who is both their Lord and ours, again, to whom Paul can say, listen, if you want to know what God's disposition is toward you, Through faith in Jesus, it is grace to you, and it is peace to you from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Guys, it should make us humble. It should make us holy. Thirdly, it should make us hopeful. My goodness, if the Lord can change us, He can change anyone. If He can raise the dead physically and spiritually, and He's manifested that, He's done it. Who is it that He cannot change? What is it that He cannot change? That's like water to the thirsty soul of a parent who watches their kids that are out of their control. (laughs) And you just, you know, you can't do anything about it, can you? There's hope in the Lord. That's like water to the thirsty soul of the family of an addict who spirals out of control. And you can't, you can, what are you going to do? It's tough. That is like water to the thirsty soul of people who are struggling in their marriage. There's hope in the Lord. And that doesn't mean that He won't use a counselor to help you. That doesn't mean any of those things. But it doesn't mean, by the way, that you can come in pridefully either. It calls you to come in humbly. Oh, I'm the same clay as this person. 
I think I can maybe better sympathize and be more compassionate and more understanding of him or of her. We need to find a third party who can say things to her that I can't say and things to me that she can't say. I mean, there's a process to this, but it begins in humility. It begins with a desire to be more like Jesus. And as you each do that, you come together, not not go apart. All right, fourthly, it should make us thankful. And it should make us thankful even for people that have hurt us and people that are difficult, which as we'll see as we get further into this letter of 1 Corinthians is exactly what these people were for Paul. He pours his heart, soul, and mind into these guys. Man, he gives them blood, sweat, and tears. He takes off and he hears that they've rejected his leadership. They question his authority. They're rejecting his teaching. They're moving toward being more like the people in their city again as opposed to more like Jesus again. That's a painful realization And yet he doesn't start in anger. He starts with thankfulness. He knows that these people were authentically called into a relationship with Christ because he saw the Holy Spirit authenticate that through all the gifts that they gave or he gave to them in ministry. And so he gives thanks for them, beginning in verse 4. He says, I give thanks to my God always for you because of the grace of God that was given you in Christ Jesus, that in every way you were enriched in him in all speech and knowledge, even as the testimony about Christ was what? It was confirmed among you by the Holy Spirit is the idea, so that you are not lacking in any gift. As you wait for the revealing of our Lord Jesus Christ, who will do what? Because it should make you feel secure even if at this moment you're probably living more maybe like a Corinthian than like somebody who's regularly engaging in this rhythm of grace. If God has truly laid hold of you, if He's testified in your spirit by His Spirit that you belong to Him, if He's manifested His gifts and evidenced that for you in the past, but you've gotten away from that like these guys have gotten away from the word of the Lord given to them by this man, Paul, who's uniquely qualified to give it. You're still His. Now, He would call you to come back in repentance. Renew your faith. Engage in the rhythm of grace. And authentically learn how to live for Him. But nevertheless, here's our God. As you wait, He says, for the revealing of our Lord Jesus Christ, who will sustain you to the end, guiltless in the day of our Lord Jesus Christ. Why? Because we've lived guiltless lives? I think we've covered that. Because Christ lived a guiltless life and covered over all of our guilt with His blood. God is faithful even when we're not. God is faithful, He says, by whom you were, and here's the word again, called into the fellowship of His Son, Jesus Christ our Lord. And that's where we'll pick it up last week or next week. But, um, but first, let me ask you these questions. Number one, how humble are you? How humble are you in your home? How humble are you in your workplace? How humble are you with each other? Don't answer that out loud. How humble are you in terms of the posture of your heart toward this city? How sympathetic, how compassionate, how understanding, how selfless? Because by nature, one lump of clay, guys. God is the one who makes the difference, not us. Secondly, are you increasing or decreasing in holiness? Like if you just take the last year, okay, are you dying more and more into sin and living more and more into righteousness? Or are you dying more and more into righteousness and living more and more into sin? Because the trajectory is toward the Lord and toward righteousness. And maybe today that's the message for you and He's calling you to return to that trajectory. Thirdly, 
Who or what have you given up on? Because it's easy to do, and it's almost harder to hope at times, isn't it? Because, you know, then your hopes get dashed. It's almost like, all right, Lord, I'm not even going to think about it. But there's hope in God. Fourthly, what Christian, don't answer this out loud, are you having a hard time being thankful for? Really? For maybe they've hurt you. Yet if they authentically belong to God, it is all going to be healed in the end, and there's great possibilities and hope for healing now too. Fifthly, do you feel secure in your relationship with God right now? Because if you belong to Him, He's not going to let you go ever. Sixthly and finally, we end where we began. Are you engaging in the rhythm of grace? Because we are not supposed to be formed by our city, but by the gospel. And then as gospel-shaped, gospel-molded, gospel-formed people, we're to go out into our city like the Hollies have done, like the other foster families and so many of the rest of you in so many other ways are doing. We're to go out into our city and to form and mold and shape it. So think that through as you head out this morning. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we do praise You, Lord, that You um, did not leave us in our fallenness. God, that You have not left us to our old nature. Lord, that though we were dead, today we are alive, and simply because You made it so. I pray, Lord, that you would awaken us by your Spirit, the whole of us, to the reality of that. Let us see our God for who he is and ourselves for who we are really and authentically and prepare our hearts for the trauma of it. But then let us see who we can be through the gospel of Jesus Christ or already are as we come to the cross. Lord, grant us this wisdom that it might take effect in our lives and make us appropriately humble and put us on a journey of holiness because we love you and we want to. We want to obey. Make us a hopeful, indeed the most hopeful of all people in the midst of a despairing world. Let them see the light of that. And make us to be thankful even for those that have hurt, even for those that have disappointed and let us down. And lastly, Lord, surround us we pray with the security that is ours and knowing that we belong to you and that you will never let us go. Do these things we ask and for your glory in Christ's name. Amen.